0: Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Sunden and I am a Master's student of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Kerry Schultz, who is a researcher at the School of History at the University of St. Andrews. Kerry's work in Intellectual History focuses primarily on political thought and theology in early modern Britain and Europe and she will be publishing her first monograph entitled Protestantism, Revolution and Scottish Political Thought, the European Context 1637 to 1651 with Edinburgh University Press in 2022. Sorry about that. Um, Today I'm talking to Carrie about her current work in a Leverhulme project on 17th century student mobility from the British Isles to continental Europe before then going on to ask her about her forthcoming book. Welcome, Kerry, and thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Kerry, you currently work as a Leverhulme uh, Early Career Fellow on a project that's entitled British and Irish Students in Europe 1600 to 1660, Education and Identity. Could you tell us what lies behind that big title?
1: Yes, so I think the title is actually going to get bigger because I've expanded this to the 17th century now, not just ending in 1660. But basically, this project developed out of a postdoc that I did over the past year at the British School at Rome. And so it's a bit of a divergence from my PhD, which is what my first monograph will be about, but it's an entirely new project. And What it focuses on is groups of students who left England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales to study abroad in continental Europe in the 17th century. So being a Catholic, for example, in Britain in the 17th century was very difficult. Uh, There were quite a few sets of laws that really persecuted Catholics. Um, Universities in Britain required students to take a Protestant confession of faith if they wanted to attend. So what this meant was that Catholic students had to go overseas if they wanted to receive a Catholic education. And so national colleges were set up in quite a few countries throughout continental Europe. So there were English and Scots and Irish colleges in Spain, in Italy, France, Germany, as well as the Low Countries. And what these allowed students to do is to come from the British Isles and to go study at these colleges. Some were seminaries, so they trained students particularly to become part of the Catholic priesthood. Um, Others functioned more as general educational institutions, but they were confessionalized so students could go over and receive a Catholic education. So when I was in Rome this past year, I was looking at the Irish, English, and Scots colleges in Rome, I was looking through the archives, sort of the institutional records, to understand what students studied, what texts they engaged with, the sort of doctrines that they were taught, and then how this affected their confessional and their national identity formation. So these students are quite interesting because they're learning about a Catholic education, they're being trained either to be part of the priesthood or to serve the Catholic mission back home. Some would go on to be diplomats or take up other positions of political prominence. And so they're all engaged in this sort of confessional goal, a shared confessional um, trajectory for what they're doing after they leave the colleges. But these are also national colleges. And so there's very interesting tensions that play out. And so, for example, in the 17th century, the Catholic Church wants to consolidate the English and Scots colleges in Rome. And they heavily resist this because they want to maintain their distinctiveness. They want to say, well, we are English in Rome. We are Scots in Rome. And so these are very interesting institutions, I think, because they really show this tension between, well, we're all Catholics. We're all trying to share in a Catholicism, um, you know, spreading Catholicism but we also have a national distinctiveness that we want to maintain uh, while we're abroad so that's what my postdoc focused on when i was in rome and then now that i've taken up a lever at st andrews i'm expanding this over the next three years to compare catholic students to reformed students so reformed students didn't have to leave their uh their education for the same reasons that catholic students did they could be trained at universities in England or Scotland, but many went abroad anyway. So we know that there are quite a few um, intellectual links between students from England, Scotland and Ireland with universities in the German-speaking lands or in the low countries. So I'm really interested in exploring the different experiences and studies of these students, both Catholic and Reformed from the British Isles, looking at what they're studying abroad, but then also at how this education and their time in a different country really contributes to their educational, their confessional and their national identity formation.
0: That sounds fascinating. Um... You're quite early in your research. I think you've just started. So at this early stage, could you already give us an outlook on what you think will be kind of the structure and the main arguments of the research outcome or is it too early to say?
1: So I have really only been in the Leverhulme for about two months now, but this is building a bit on the work that I did over the past nine months in Rome. So I have some general ideas and I haven't really started looking into the reform student movement yet. And so that's something that I explored a bit in my PhD, but not enough to really draw conclusions about that yet. On the Catholic movement side, um, I think that there's a bit more that I can say uh, for certain now. Um, I think these Catholic colleges abroad they do train students to have a shared confessional identity. Many of the students who are living at these national colleges actually take their courses at centralized institutions. So for example, in Rome, you have the English and Scots college, but then those students are living there and taking their courses at the Jesuit-run Collegio Romano. So that's a central institution in Rome. And so they're engaging with students from across Europe when they're there, but then they're going back to their national colleges and they're getting further instruction or they're living with people from their own country. And so one of the things that I've noticed so far is that I think these Catholic colleges are quite interesting for being a place where national tensions emerge on an international scale. And so now we're seeing that that the conflict between England and Scotland and Ireland and what it means to be British is not a conversation that's happening simply at home, but it's actually something that's happening overseas in these institutions. Um, And we see quite often both in the English and Scots College attempts to maintain the national distinctiveness of those institutions, uh, so Scots College, for example, in Rome, their archive um, has a series of letters and correspondence and petitions from students that are basically arguing that they want the rector of the college to only be Scottish. They'd had a couple Italian rectors, and they were saying the Italian rectors don't understand our culture, our customs, our language. We want a Scottish rector, and that needs to be something kind of maintained for the future. And um, So I do think those are sort of the conclusions I'm drawing so far, As we can look at what students are studying, and we see it's very straightforward sort of confessional um education, it's teaching them the same things about theology, about politics, about ethics and philosophy. And um, but when it comes down to the actual practical outworking of these institutions and that sort of context, I think it's a fascinating indication of how national tensions are then playing out overseas. And um, so those are sorts of those are kind of the, the themes that I'm seeing thus far. And that will likely change as I do more work and I have to do more archival research in various Catholic colleges throughout Europe. I've mostly just focused on Rome. And but but when I expand that, and then certainly when I start looking at the reformed context, I think that will very well change. Um, but those are the, the preliminary findings, so to speak.
0: All right. You already touched on two points that I was going to ask you about. Um, kind of which differences you see between Catholic and Reformed students, and then also how um the experience play out with well, Scottish, Irish, and English people. So um I will skip this for now, but um, Circling a bit back, I found it interesting that you distinguish between confessional and national identity. And I wanted to ask, um, was it difficult kind of conceptualizing these two aspects of identity or perspectives on it? And how can they be differentiated and how do they perhaps also overlap? Yes, so that is something that I'm
1: still kind of going through at the moment. So identity formation is is obviously quite a difficult concept. Um, thinking about how people thought about themselves is quite challenging. Um, and sometimes it's just really difficult to know. Um, so I'm still trying to wrap my mind around sort of the conceptual framework for that. And um, I think in terms of how they're different, um, confessional identity being sort of the, the identity that you hold about your religious faith, about the the sort of confession, the Christian Protestant confession that you're aligned with. And, and then obviously national uh, identity sort of being related to your your culture, your norms, uh, your national sort of consciousness there. And so I think those are fairly distinct in terms of you can be scottish but you can also be a scottish catholic you can also be a scottish protestant uh vice versa and so i think that they are overlapping categories in some senses i think uh it's a little bit easier on the the protestant side and because i've mostly looked at the civil wars of the 1640s and so for example in scotland in the 1640s many scots would see their confessional identity so being a scottish sometimes Presbyterian, sometimes Episcopalian, but Protestant broadly speaking, um, they would see that as part of their national identity. So they thought that Scotland was a nation covenanted with God, that they were sort of bringing the true religion to the forefront, the true religion there being reformed Protestantism. And so for In that context, on the Protestant side, those identities do overlap quite a bit. And because you're basically seeing your national identity as part of your religious practice uh, and the religious culture. And so that I think is a bit more distinct on the Catholic side, it's quite challenging because those often come into conflict and you could be English, but you can also be heavily persecuted for being a Catholic. And so your your confessional and your national identity are therefore in tension. And so I think that's what's quite interesting about looking at a cross confessional perspective. So trying to look at both Catholics and Protestants is seeing what they do with those identities. Because for some people, they're very closely intertwined. Their national and confessional identity are similar. And um, But for other people, they're very much at odds. And it's considering how being abroad and how being trained and how their education is really allowing them to think about those identities and what they do when they come into tension. And um, so it's a great question. And I think it's something that conceptually I'm still trying to think through. But those would be sort of my initial thoughts at this stage of the project.
0: Okay, that sounds um, extremely complex as well, and I think you're you're combining a lot of different aspects in in this one project. Um, let me just ask what what came first, an interest in identity formation or student mobility? How how did you develop this initial idea in Rome, and then developed it further now? So. My postdoc in Rome developed a bit out of
1: my PhD work, Um, so I think we'll probably talk about that a bit later if we talk about the book, so I don't want to go into it too much now, Um, but my PhD work, part of that was on the Scottish universities, and it was on how Scottish students were educated, and so one of the things I really had to grapple with was international intellectual networks, so how are Scottish students who are maybe traveling abroad, coming back? How are they going over and teaching in institutions overseas? So that was something that I was always interested in, was this movement of both staff and students and what that does to national exchange on an international level. And so I expanded this because I was quite frankly kind of tired of looking at the reformed context. uh, And so I really thought maybe looking at the Catholic side for a comparison would be interesting, um, which is why I applied to go to the British school at Rome. and so I was, I think, ultimately first interested in student mobility as a way of thinking about knowledge exchange, not just through the printed text, but actually through the movement of people. And so as an intellectual historian, you know, I want to move a bit beyond looking at books and treatises and sort of pamphlets and that way of spreading ideas and looking, okay, how are people actually being educated then going back and disseminating the ideas that they have learned into the wider culture. Um, so I would say my my focus was primarily on student mobility and then I think once I got to Rome and I started to realize well there's some very interesting tensions going on here between the Scots, the English, the Welsh, and the Irish all within Rome. Uh, there's interesting tensions between their shared goal of spreading the Catholic faith of trying to reconvert the British Isles back to Catholicism but then all of a sudden there's a lot of intermixing with you know well we're English, we're Scottish, we don't want to kind of align ourselves. And So I think identity formation did follow after that and I I think the the archives in Rome really showed me the wealth of material there is to consider there.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for giving us an insight into your current, um, well, well, most current uh, project, I would say. Um, You already touched upon your um, forthcoming book. Um, You will be publishing with Edinburgh University Press next year. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, the book is entitled Protestantism, Revolution and Scottish Political Thought, the European Context 1637 to 1651. That's a mouthful. Yes. Um, <laughs> could you tell us briefly, what is the book about?
1: Yes, uh, so very basically, the book is about... Uh, the relationship between theology and political thought in the Scottish Revolution, uh, looking at how Covenanters and Royalists defended their respective causes in the Civil War period, uh, mostly by drawing on European, continental European source material, um, and cross-confessional analyses of ideas about church and state. And um, so that's a very basic kind of overview of it. And um, there's two main goals that I have with the book. One of which is to move away from thinking about Scotland as part of only a British context, Um, so there has been a lot of scholarship on how the Scottish experience of the civil wars was similar or different to England, um, how it fits into a three kingdoms narrative, uh, which I think is brilliant work, and but I wanted to move away from that a bit um, and start comparing Scotland to continental Europe. Um, And so one of the ways I've done this is look at the reception of both Catholic scholastic as well as Lutheran and Calvinist ideas about church and state in Scotland, uh, considering how Scots were applying these ideas to their unique uh, ecclesiological context and to their ideas about the church and the state. And so that's kind of the main goal is to to shift that focus towards continental Europe and where the Scots align themselves in that sense. And then the second goal really is to bring theology and political thought together. And so for a long time, historians of the church and historians of political thought have sort of divided their labor. They've, They've analyzed things separately and that is changing. And I think there's a lot of really good work being done on religion and politics. Um, in this period, but that still tends to focus on how intellectuals are using verses from the Bible, for example, or narratives from the Bible. They're reading themselves into scripture. And I wanted to focus more on theology. So on ideas about church government, ecclesiology um, and how that then impacts or informs political thought and vice versa. So that's yeah the, the overarching theme there. And then two of the sort of main thrusts of the work at this moment.
0: That's great. It sounds like um, it really will contribute to both the field of intellectual history and then theology um, and and change something and uh, I'm hoping that it will. And as I understand and as you kind of hinted at before is that your doctoral research focused on political thought in the Scottish Revolution as well and situated Scottish political ideas within their continental European context. So does your book, or rather in which way does your book uh, build on the findings of your doctoral research and what has motivated you to write on this particular subject? Well, other than the (laughs) golds you just mentioned. (laughs)
1: Um, Yes, so my my first monograph will be a revision, but Pretty much significantly draws upon my PhD work um, so I'm turning the thesis into a book really um, and so a lot of it will remain kind of similar to the findings of my PhD um, I'm expanding it a little bit adding in a bit more about two kingdoms theology and a couple other theological concepts um, but my main motivation in writing this was simply to try to give a new perspective on Scottish history that I think has been largely omitted from intellectual history And one of the things that really bothered me as I was starting my PhD and I was doing this initial research was that the Scots are often portrayed in this period as holy war advocates, as radical religious militants, um, especially compared to English, uh, their English counterparts at the time. So a lot of historians, especially of political thought, were basically saying that the English were using legal constitutional arguments, they were very founded in sort of secular political ideas when they were defending resistance to the king, and the Scots were just going crazy defending the true religion and were just advocating holy war. Um, and that really bothered me. Um, and so what I wanted to do was actually look at Scottish political thought more seriously, um, and, and still take account that they are very much advocates of the true religion they are advocating resistance to defend that but also in a continental European context they're not that unusual for the time and the arguments they're advancing are fairly similar to you know, Lutheran Calvinist and Catholic scholastic ideas about church and state. Um, So that was the main motivation really is to try to situate Scotland in a continental European context to, I think, undo some of those characterizations about the Covenanters, particularly as sort of radical religious militants and really reassess what it means to fight a war for religion in the period and to take religion as a, a serious
0: motivation for warfare. There's a lot of different aspects coming together there. Um, how did you go about structuring the book? Um, what what is the, What's the outline there?
1: Yes. Uh, so the first chapter is about two kingdoms theology, um, because I think that's a really important intellectual framework for how Scots are thinking about their world at the time. Um, so one of the big divides in intellectual history for the early modern period, at least, is what is Quote unquote, secular uh, and what is religious. And so a lot of scholars will think about arguments that draw on law or ideas about the civil state as being secular. And so what I wanted to show in the first chapter was actually they're thinking about the world as part of two kingdoms. And that doesn't mean that your temporal kingdom or your civil state is secular by any means. And so the first chapter is really about two kingdoms theology and how that sets up the way that Scots are thinking about their world, about the relationship between church and state, uh, as well as the relationship between ecclesiastical and uh, civil authorities. So after that um, kind of opening framework, I've got a chapter on Royalist political thought. So how people who support the King um, are thinking about civil authority, are thinking about uh, the legitimacy of resistance in the civil state. Then that's followed by a chapter about covenanting political thought um, and primarily how the covenanters are actually drawing on Catholic scholastic legal theory uh, to make their arguments for resistance. And then I've got, The final two chapters, one is about how they're applying these ideas then to the church. So it deals with ecclesiology, uh, focusing specifically on ideas about church government, about the regulation of sort of doctrines and ceremonies in the church and where the civil magistrate's power lies in that process. And the final chapter then is a summary of ideas about resistance and obedience. Um, So what duties does God assign to human beings um, in the civil state? So it does try to cover both theological arguments when I'm looking at the ecclesiology of the church, but then also how those are intrinsically connected to political ideas, um, which we have tended to see as secular, but which I think are very intricately bound up in the theology of the time as
0: well. Fantastic. Thank you. Now this will be your first monograph. Um, Could you tell us how are you experiencing this whole process of researching, writing and then also publishing and is there anything that you found particularly interesting or even surprising during research or even some of the more administrative sides of it?
1: Yes, uh, so it's fortunately I was able to get sort of in with a great publisher. Uh, EUP has been wonderful, so I think that was really helpful um, having a good publishing team on the side. And so that experience has all been great. I would say it's been challenging um, trying to turn the PhD into a book without. Well, I mean, I was in Rome for a year and then obviously COVID restrictions meant I couldn't travel, so I was very limited in what I could access. And so now I'm trying to now that I'm back in the UK, I'm really trying to get through all of that. So there were some practical challenges I think uh, pandemic (laughs) caused, and that made researching for the book and kind of extending the thesis into the book a bit more challenging. And I have found the process quite quite good so far. I mean, it is it is difficult to start an entirely new project while trying to finish an old one. Um, so I have found while trying to do the Leverhulme research, that's what I'm most interested in now. I'm sort of done with the, the PhD work. And so that has been it, a challenging tension uh, trying to to do both at the same time. Um, but I do think it's it's been valuable and I think it will be a great experience to just get the book out and sort of see what people you know make of it and see what the conversation goes forward as um, and hopefully apply some of the more abstract sort of theoretical concepts I've developed in the book to this new project going ahead as well.
0: That leads me to my last question just to wrap up this overview of your publication what do you think your readers should be taking away from the book? So I think there are two things that I want them to
1: take away. Uh, The first of which is taking Scotland and Scotland's religious culture in the period more seriously um, and looking at it more as a rational behavior. Um, So I think, as I mentioned before, there's a tendency to characterize Scots as sort of radical religious theocrats, um, people who are just really swept up in thinking, well, God told us we have to have a war for the religion, you know, true religion. That's what we're going to do. And I I want to challenge that. I want people to think about um, fighting for the true religion, not as something fundamentally irrational or something um, that we can't comprehend um, as a legitimate motivation and take it as something that's actually quite normal in continental Europe at the time. Um, and it's, it, I think just shifting that paradigm of the way that we treat early modern religion, um, I think is is one of the main goals. And I would also like people to perhaps take away thinking about Scotland, not just in a three kingdoms context, but thinking more about it in a continental Europe context. And so there's been a lot of scholarship that really orient uh, orients English intellectuals in their European context, but I think in the Scottish context, we still have quite a lot of work to do in that field. Um, and there's been amazing scholarship about the movement of Scots abroad and, you know, people who are merchants or people who are exiles overseas. And But now looking, I think, at what's the intellectual connection, what are those intellectual networks, I think is, is valuable as well. And so there's, I'm hoping people take away quite a few different things, but I think if those were the main ones I could point to, I would say, I would say that.
0: Well, I am most certainly looking forward to the uh, book's publication and then um, I'll, see. I'll see what comes across for the reader. But um, I want to thank you again for taking the time today uh, to speak with me. I wish you good luck in your current project and with the publication. It's been really interesting and um, I hope to see you or hear you again next time. Thank you very much.